Hi, everyone, and welcome to Spark Time. I'm Danny Stoltzfus. And I'm Will Riedel. Of Mighty Spark Communications. Our mission is to use scientific innovation to drive transformative change. We believe that compelling storytelling is the most effective tool we have in our arsenal to motivate and inspire audiences to invest themselves in audacious goals. We are scientists by training, storytellers by experience, and entrepreneurs by nature. Let's get started. Hey, well, another great conversation for our listeners today. We recently had the privilege of interviewing Hatar Singh, who is at Oppenheimer, and I'm really excited for our listeners to hear the advice he had for the management teams of early stage companies. You know, as well as I do, a lot of our listeners fall into that category, and I really hope they enjoy his pearls of wisdom. Yeah, Danny, I really like some of the advice that uh, Hartaj gave to our listeners. The first piece that, that really spoke to me is, is keeping dreams big and alive, but constantly asking how they can be better. And that sort of sounds like something we're saying all the time, which is keep the dream alive, but make it tangible and make it realistic. And of course, Hartaj agreed with us that this is a delicate balance that we're constantly refining when we're working with clients' decks. Yeah, well, that's so true. All right, let's dive in. Hartaj Singh is a managing director and senior analyst covering biotechnology at Oppenheimer. Prior to joining Oppenheimer, Hartaj was managing director and senior analyst at BTIG Securities. He began his sell-side career at Lehman Brothers and subsequently moved to the buy side, covering biotech at Visium Asset Management and Tecumseh Partners. He began his career as a clinical trial project manager for ClinTrials Research and also worked as a strategic analysis manager for Johnson & Johnson. He has a BA in biology from Case Western and holds an MBA from Duke University's School of Business. Like I said, welcome, Hartaj. We're delighted to have you. And how are you doing today? Um, pretty good, Will. Donnie, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Yeah, awesome. So would you mind telling the audience a bit more about yourself? Tell, tell us about your journey to becoming a biotech analyst and what motivated you to take this path. You know, Will, that is probably uh, one of the more interesting questions that always comes up in my <laughs> life uh, from other people and honestly to myself, because it's actually a journey of serendipity, uh, really more than anything else. Um, I was born and brought up in India. I lived in Australia for a while to a military father and, uh, and a family. Uh, my mom and dad traveled around a lot because he was part of the Indian military uh, uh, and then moved to the United States when I was a teenager. Uh, typical immigrant story for me and my younger brother, who's uh, younger by about a year. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do in the United States because I didn't grow up here. Uh, and then kind of went from biology to working in clinical drug development, loving that, went, going to business school and fall in love with finance there, which then led, ultimately led me to a career in um, on Wall Street, which by the way, I never thought in my teenage years or my 20s I would ever be doing. So it really is more than anything a journey of curiosity combined with serendipity that's kind of led me here. Mm, that, I, as a scientist, I can relate to that. The whole the whole journey in your career feels like a serendipity and in, in following your nose and finding things that you like. So can you tell us a bit more about uh, what you do as a biotech analyst for our listeners? Yeah, you know, Will, uh, it's really an interesting area. A, a great a mentor of mine, a gentleman by the name of Mark Schoenbaum, who's probably, you know, the greatest, I, in my opinion, biotech and pharma analyst of all time on Wall Street. Uh, when I entered what's called the sell side, meaning a biotech analyst at an investment bank, you know, he gave me an advice. He said, Hartaj, you know, we sit at the nexus of information flow. And as a result of that, 
um, we can connect with, because we're very heavily regulated, we can connect with people from all across the, uh, you know, the, the biotech arena, whether it's investors, companies, um, internal clients at our investment bank, uh, physicians, what we call key opinion leaders, scientists, mm-hmm. patients. So what we do is essentially talk to a lot of very diverse people, synthesize that information, and then put out our thoughts on what we believe about that one stock or about that one drug that's being developed. It's really nothing more complicated than that. I love how you use the word nexus to describe the flow of information. To me, that makes a lot of sense and sounds like a super interesting place to be seeing everything that goes on in the biotech ecosystem. I really appreciate you explaining your role as not everyone that listens to our podcast is experienced with dealing with the public markets or gone public. So this is super helpful. Specifically though, if you had to say three things that investors are looking for from your analysis, what would they be? You know, uh, Donnie, um, on a daily basis, uh, what we're trying to do uh, and again, it depends a little on the type of investor. You know, institutional mm-hmm. investors, meaning pension funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, are a little different from private wealth management. You know, which is different from you know the typical you know Main Street America you know kind of uh, investors, uh, retail investors. But I think there are two or three things fundamentally everybody looks for. One is um, you know depending. Uh, on on where the stock is, what do we think about it? We always remind people that the stock is a derivative function of the underlying business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, to understand the stock, you've got to first understand the business and then how does that roll up into what the stock is doing at this moment? So the first thing always is, what are your thoughts on the stock, um, you know, as it stands currently? Then mm-hmm. after that, people are always interested in finding out what, do you think it's cheap relative to where it's now uh, or historically or to its peer group? Or is it expensive, uh, again, you know, relative to historical you know, norms or to its peer group? And then lastly, what should we do with it going forward? Um, and that's really what it boils down to. Uh, a lot of information goes into answering those questions. Uh, but that, that's, I think, the three uh, questions we're always trying to answer all the time daily. Great. Thank you for that, Hartaj. That's super simple to understand, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. So there's so much information that goes into making those types of um, uh, recommendations, Hartaj. And I'm curious about what kind of materials you're using um, to to make that analysis. Um, so, Will, you know, um, one of the really great things about my job, which I, I really enjoy what I do for a living, and one of the reasons I really enjoy it is because I'm actually very heavily regulated. The amount of exams I have to pass and the amount of information I have to show, yeah. share with my firm and various regulatory bodies is extreme. Um, you know, even um, the kind of interactions I can have with people outside my firm are closely monitored. And I believe it should be because it actually gives me then the freedom to go out um, and then interact with investors with companies, with physicians, because they know uh, that if I'm following the rules and regulations set upon me, um, that, you know, uh, things are done in a very specific and regulated manner. So, you know, a lot of the information we look at are actually, um, you know, uh, 10Ks, 10Qs. These are um, uh, 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 disclosures by companies that are in the public domain for everybody to consume. 
Then on top of that becomes the next level of disclosures, which are conversations that we have, mm-hmm. either one-on-one with company management or with key opinion leaders or internal clients or um, patients, physicians. Um, and because those are not in the public domain and we're heavily regulated, uh, we always have to be very careful about what it is that we share when somebody says something to us. Um, and then the last part, um, you know, that goes into these decision-making, a lot of the information sources are just a lot of secondary research that we're doing. You know, uh, the secondary research is reading transcripts, um, reading the opinions of uh, a diverse set of people in the public domain, you know, media, biotech reporters, um, uh, people who write blogs, folks like yourself, uh, so it's really an aggregation of all those sources, public, heavily regulated, non-regulated, um, that then come to us. And that's all the information we have to um, synthesize in order to arrive at a conclusion. A ton of information to synthesize. And so it's, it's really amazing to, to hear how you do that. So I, I understand that you know a lot of the SAC filings fact play a huge role into determining how these, these companies are doing and for you to make recommendations. But in that second tier of conversations and and seeing companies, you know, pitch their materials. How do companies pitching their materials to the outside world, how does that affect the the stock price? Because they have a lot of control about how that narrative um, goes out to the world. Correct. You know, it's a really great question, Will. And it actually, the question that you're asking, in fact, has some implications, um, you know, uh, for example, uh, against potential future competitors, you know, for me and my job. One is by being very heavily regulated and, you know, following these companies as closely as we do, me and my team does, and having these relationships, that actually creates a barrier to entry for future competition. Not in an unfair way. We don't want to be unfair. Um, but in a way that the, you know, the more time I spend aggregating uh, this information database that I possess, right, in my mind, and then the relationships I've created, the harder it becomes for somebody to supersede that, right, um, which, which would happen in most jobs of this nature. The other thing that's actually really interesting about our job is that, you know, I'm one of those probably few people on Wall Street that really thinks artificial intelligence will be, will help me at my job, but will not replace me. I'm very mm. sure about that. And I'll give you an example. You know, an example is of a large company, uh, for example, um, uh, Gilead Pharmaceuticals, uh, a very well-regarded large biotech company that does great science. And, you know, when they give guidance on the fourth quarter call, they also tell you usually that the first quarter that follows the fourth quarter call, the revenues are down, you know, quarter to quarter. Now, at the last fourth quarter call, the company said, well, you know, historic, the, the, the revenues will be down 10 to 12%. Historically, the last three, four years, they've been down 13 to 14%. So because my team and I have followed this company very closely, we picked up on that. It was just a little Mm. script and part of what they said, right? We picked up on that. And then when we talked to the company later, you know, the IR and the chief financial officer, we said, hey, just by the way, you know, you mentioned it's 10 to 12, but historically 13 to 14. So it seems like the downtrend might not be as bad this time around. And they said, Hartad, you picked up on something and you, you know, you could be correct. Right. And that's not something that a piece of software will could possibly do, right? Because it depends on a lot of different synthesis of data that we've done and the relationship we have with the company. So if we go out to our investors and say, hey, look, historically the stock has always been down this much, and this time it could be not down as much. And so maybe beat those expectations. Well, 
that's possibly a buy signal, right? From us mm. to our investors and our clients. So that's the kind of like what I call unofficial, um, you know, um, um, you know, communications that go on and where we have to synthesize a lot of data combined with relationships that then lead us to helping our clients uh, make these investment decisions. That really speaks to the depth of your knowledge and your team's amazing ability to synthesize information and come out with a positive recommendation as to what to do next. I think that's really valuable when you're talking and thinking about public stage companies. But I want to come back and think about early stage companies who are not having those type of data releases just yet that you described. And what do you think those early stage companies can do to maximize the potential positive impacts of the future? Donnie, you know, that's, again, a really, really great question because it's actually one of the things our team really prides itself on. I have two associates, and we talk about this all the time with our smaller cap companies. You know, we remind them that we, you know, talk to 100-plus management teams per year. You know, there's 350 days in a year, 200 days of work, roughly. Um, You know, and we're spending a lot of time talking to management teams from very tiny private companies to very large companies. And, you know, the example I give, the analogy is athletics, right? Uh, I'm, I mean, I grew up playing sports. I wasn't great, but I was, I was decent. <laughs> and um, you know, if you are, if you're an athlete in the fifth or sixth grade, and you know, you want to start for your junior high team, right? Then you're looking at the people you want to emulate, right? How could right. you be better with them in order to start? And then if you're junior high and you want to start for your high school team, then you're looking at the high school players and trying to figure out what can you make better so that when you get to your high school, you can be starting for your high school team, right? You can't be in high school an athlete and at that time thinking, okay, how can I be better now? Because that time's already passed you by. You need to be thinking ahead, right? And so for our smaller cap companies, what we keep on reminding them is that, look, you are great entrepreneurs and your board is a great set of investors. You've had a lot of success. You wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't have been given access to all this capital and all these experts, um, you know, in the private markets, um, you know, if you didn't have great ideas and you weren't driven as entrepreneurs. But you also need to check that at the door when you have conversations with people who are talking to management teams across the board. And the questions you need to be asking is, hey, so as we get bigger, you know, as we're going to that next step of series in our evolution, you know, series B funding, crossover, public company, what are the things that management teams do that we can do better? You know, what is the standard, right? What is the bar? Um, and so that it's really that simple, Donnie. In, in a lot of ways, we are, like I said, that nexus of information flow. One of the things we pride ourselves on is helping our management teams get to that next level of corporate mes- messaging, of understanding how to manage expectations. We assume that they know what they're doing in terms of the science, in terms of clinical development, regulatory development. We might be able to give some feedback there, but in general, I would say 90 plus percent of the time, they actually have a pretty good handle on what they're doing. For us, really, it's more so about how do you get to that next level so you can get an investor's attention and that investor is going to want to invest in you because they think, okay, these people are actually going to get stuff done as opposed to, well, these people you know, might just be interested in an idea and maybe not in it as an investment. Yes, yes. I think that's really, really valuable advice and great for founders and management teams that are in those early stages, pre-Series B and crossover rounds. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking with the management teams we work with explaining these same concepts, but of course we don't have nearly the 
depth of information you have around this subject. So I really appreciate you sharing your insights there. And and Donnie, if you don't mind, yeah, I'll just add one thing to it, right? It's a very difficult balance, right? It's a very difficult balance because you want to encourage the entrepreneurs. I personally believe that entrepreneurs really, at least, you know, for here us in American society are the one of the cores of what keeps us driving forward and transformation and change, you know, their, their visions and their, uh, you know, the, the, the energy that they have to get things done is truly something special, you know? Um, and so, but we want to encourage these people. We want to keep their dreams huge and alive. Right. right. But at the same time, we want to ask them to be humble and always be asking how I could be better. Right. And that's the balance that's always difficult. Sometimes people get so caught up into the largeness of their dream that they lose the ability to want to get better. Right. It's the dream supersedes anything else. And that's the tension we try to keep at the right balance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And another way that we think about that is, you know, with respect to the messaging, it has to feel like it's big, but it also has to feel tangible and realistic at the same time. So I think that speaks to the balance that you're talking about. And getting that right can be very challenging, especially when you're very close to the situation. It can be hard to see the big picture and realize how to achieve that balance naturally. No, I completely agree. Yeah. So I, transitioning on from there, I think my next question comes to um, investments that seem like a great good value, but for some reason they failed to attract investors because of some sort of mistakes that the, the management team or the founder has made with the pitch. Are there any uh, examples of that that you can share? You know, um, I think that's one of the things we struggled most, the most with smaller companies, um, mm-hmm. uh, both private and public. They come in gung ho, um, you know, really big dreams, big ideas, lots of energy in the beginning. They might hit a rough patch. They might hit a rough funding environment. And then, you know, just like air let out of a balloon, literally it kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of collapses to like almost a lot of negativity. And a lot of like, it goes from like really huge to really, you know, this is not going to work and things are just really bad. Right. Mm. Um, and you know, what we try to always remind our management teams, um, all the time is when I talk to them, um, and I, and I tell my team this all the time, we have to be, we have to hold hands. We have to be cheerleaders from time to time. And part of that is reminding them that, look, you're not in this alone. It sounds very, like this almost sounds like superficial, um, you know, but one of the things we have to do when ideas are not well done is we come to them with data that shows that, look, there are other companies out there suffering also. There are other management teams also going through a really rough time. Here's the data that shows you that, you know, also, you know, biotech drug development doesn't work all the time. You know, 45, 50% of projects in phase three fail. There's a current company right now um, that's actually, uh, you know, based in the Bay Area, start off with huge dreams, working in cell therapy. Um, and, you know, we casually mentioned to them about a phase three change that they made, and they don't view it as a failure, which is fine. But at the same time, you know, admitting that, okay, I have, this has not worked is actually the first step to recovery, right? So again, these sounds like superficial things, but part of our job is to show them data that says, you know what, you've hit a bump in the road. That's actually pretty normal. 
And it's how you recover from this bump in the road that's actually going to define you really in the future, right? Yeah. And that then becomes the second part of the conversation, which is much more qualitative, right? Which is that what are other teams that have succeeded when they have stumbled and fallen, you know, on the path forward? What are some of the things that they've done to help them recover and then move on, move forward? Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you can get to that point, it actually starts a really constructive dialogue at that point. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts there, Hartaj. Thank you. I, I really like the concept of partnering with the management teams to get their messaging correct and acknowledging that it's not easy and that mistakes do happen, but you can always turn that into a positive and accept that, you know, something unplanned happened, as we all know it does in biotech. And yes, there are a lot of failures. But despite all of that, we're all on this journey together. And we're all working towards something positive and good for the future. And it can be really challenging to see that when you're in the the midst of the failure. But having, you know, trusted partners such as yourself that can point out, look, hey, these guys went through that too. And look what they managed to do with that and giving people like a path to see that there's something better on the other side, I think is a really nice way to think about it. And for for me as, uh, you know, someone in this space, I think that I need to hold on to that sometimes too, because otherwise the world can feel a little depressing in the, in the space of biotech, but holding on to those positive ideas and why we all got into the industry in the first place seems to be something that resonates with you as well. And Donnie, you know, really, really good point, as you said, you know, and I'll give you a concrete example of another type of learning that comes out of this, right? So uh, a lot of times biotech executives, and I think these executives across the board, any startup kind of industry is, you know, I tell the executives we work with, it's like, look, even if this doesn't work, the knowledge that you've gained in working with, you know, quote unquote, a failure actually is going to help you in your next endeavor. Right? Yeah, and I'll give you I'll give you a concrete example of that. So we covered when I first started Oppenheimer in 2016. I covered a company called Catabasis from um, in based in Boston, um, um, and the management team there, led by Jill Minley, had a drug that could possibly um, you know replace uh, steroids in DMD, uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a muscle wasting disease in young boys, right. and it's just horrible. And it worked in phase two, but unfortunately it didn't work in phase three. Right. And one of the conversations I had with Jill and her team after the failure was what's next. And I kept on reminding them, and they knew this, that the entire process that they had gone in phase two, phase three as a small company, they had learned a tremendous amount. And that maybe, you know, they could take on another project that they could turn around and actually, because of all their learnings, the next time around, increase the probability of their, the chances of their success. And that's, you know, in, in a, in a roundabout manner is what happened. They were able to in license a private company's product in a space called HAE, these attacks that happen to patients. And they're now on the, on the verge of a proof of, uh, phase two concept, proof of, uh, concept readout that could validate this mechanism that just kind of changes, um, you know, the standard of care in that area. And they've been able to speed this project along in two years in a way that a new team could not have done. And my belief is, if you ask Jill, a lot of this came from probably the learnings of the failure the first time around. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, so, not a failure. It was it's actually a, a success. It was it's just one step in the road. Exactly. One step in the road. And that's what we remind a lot of our executives uh, and management and even regular employees. I'm like, you're learning tremendous amounts of information. And 
it, the, you know, when you go on to your next thing, this will position you for success. When I first mentors, when I worked in uh, clinical drug development, Vernon Nice, I remember he always used to tell me, he was my manager. He said, Hartaj, prepare yourself for success. Don't prepare yourself for failure. And the way you prepare yourself for success is by learning things from the ground up. And honestly, that's become a touchstone of mine. Uh, just uh, by the way. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And that's such a great story illustrating how the team turned it around and now they're doing another amazing thing. And I'm curious about your take on their messaging at that time. When they were in that tricky situation, you know, every manager's nightmare, their phase three data suddenly doesn't look so good. What did they get right in their messaging that allowed them to say to investors, hey, hang on, let's take a beat and it's going to be even better. So what established trust in that relationship again? Yeah, well, you know, I would just speculate, you know, in what for for Catabases, which is now a company called Astria Therapeutics, you know, I think they just, I mean, they're they're the the vast numbers of the team. I didn't see change that much. The chief medical officer, whose specialty was in Duchesne's, moved to another company uh, that's actually doing very well in Duchesne's. But overall, you know, they stayed the same. Um, I think when I've seen, uh, you know, failures. Um, um, what is the key component uh, that I've seen in success for the next step is that management has been thinking ahead. I can't speak for Jill, the CEO of, you know, what was Catabase, now Astria, but my gut feeling is, is that once they're, you know, phase two and then phase three in Duchenne's, the phase three didn't work, that already she was thinking ahead. And they knew that as a public entity, they could in license, a, you know, something from a private company. Um, and that that private company then that, those investors didn't have the incentive to maybe do an IPO. They could just sort of merge their project into a public company that was essentially a shell in a way now, right? And she probably went to her to these private companies that had some great assets, many of them, and pitched to them that, hey, look, this is a team. We're very seasoned. We're seasoned executives. And some of that seasoning has come from failure. And these are the things we think that we can do to make, to make sure we don't make those mistakes again. And as long as the drug is well positioned, you've done good work early on, we can probably take it, you know, to success. So I think the key thing is that management always has to be thinking ahead. I remind mm -hmm. this to my associates. Don't assume you're going to be, you're only going to see success. You've got to have scenarios that show failure. In fact, I'll tell you honestly, when I talk to new management teams that I'm meeting for the first time, I ask them, what's their plan B if things don't work or plan C, you know, um, for alternate, you know, let's say realities or alternate scenarios. And if they look at me blankly, no matter how great, well-funded they are, or how great scientists they are, if they look at me blankly and they say, Hartaj, but we've done the work. We think there's a high chance this trial is going to work. That to me is a red flag right off the bat. Right. Because they've actually not done the scenario analysis for what happens if there's a failure. Um, and you know what? Nothing in life is 100%, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to take a half step back. And I want to ask you a question. Hartaj, you might, <laughs> you might laugh at me and that's okay. But I mean, you must see so many different uh, you know, pitches, corporate, corporate presentations in your role, you know, people um, giving you elevator pitches, et cetera. And when you're in that situation, seeing them, what aspects of that pitch are, are critical for you to make informed decisions? So this is the part where you may laugh at me. Let's, let's say if you had to make a decision about um, investing in a company in, in 30 seconds, what would you need to hear in that pitch? You know, first and foremost, it would just be a management team that's very upfront, meaning they're very transparent. They tell us 
you know, very quickly what they've done, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what are the things they're doing to, um, you know, mitigate what's not working with their project, with their molecule or their biologic, right? Also, the second thing is I want to see that they're realistic. So what is the competition? Like, what are they going up against? Um, if they're going into an area where there's really no competition, no drugs been approved ever, I want them to be realistic and say, Artaj, you know what? This is a new area. And the regulatory and the clinical pathways are going to be very complicated. I'll give you an example of a company in Boston, again, called Intrada Therapeutics. We just picked up coverage of them uh, about a couple of uh, month and a half ago. And one of the things I really liked about them in talking to their CEO, Deepal Doshi and his team, was when we were doing our diligence on them, they have their own proprietary project in Duchenne's. They have another one that they partnered out to Vertex, what's called DM1. It's a a, a neuromuscular disorder. And they got a $400 million check. Now, of course, you know, the easy conclusion can be, well, you got $400 million. That's all it took for you to partner that out. But I actually wanted to go a level deeper with Entrada. And I said, Deepal, why did you partner it out? Like, I know 400 million is nice, but, you know, that could have, the economic value of that could have been much more to your stock, right? And he gave me an answer that really was something that we actually published in our initiation also. He said, Hartaj, we have a, I'm kind of paraphrasing it. He said, Hartaj, we have a pretty good idea of what we're good at and what we're not good at. And he said, we have a framework for the projects we want to take ahead. For example, we need to know the science, we need to know the clinical regulatory and, um, and, and, and clinical pathways, and we need to know the endpoints for the clinical trials for success. He said, in DMD, I know all these three things. In DM1, I don't know number two, clinical and regulatory, because almost no drugs have been ever approved there, if any. And then I don't even know which endpoints the FDA was going to ask us down the road. So I thought, and our team agreed, that maybe this is a project better off for a larger company to do like a vertex. And so we partnered it. And I was like, I like this management team because you know what? They're realistic. They know what they can do, but they also know what they cannot, which is why they went forward and had the partnership. So I think that's the other part of it is that I want them to, I want to know that they're good at things, but I also want to know what they're not good at. What are the things that would, you know, make them partner or consider, you know, alternative scenarios for their project? Yeah. I really like that story and that it demonstrates traction but that they're also being very realistic about what they can and what they can't do. And off the back of that, they're making strategic decisions. So with that, I'm curious about demonstrating traction uh, like with compelling data packages. We know that 99% of the time, investors are interested in compelling data packages. But do you think that a, or can you think of any examples where a compelling scientific narrative is enough to attract investor audiences. Have you ever seen that be effective, Hartouch? That honestly, Will, is really just connected to the biotech funding cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the you know easy answer. There's a slightly more complicated part to it. Um, the easy answer is that if the biotech markets, if you know funding is really good, and we're one of the most extreme risk-on sectors, right? Mm. So when the risk-on ma- mood is really good, which means that you know, there's a lot of money and money, you know, that's willing to go into a risk on environment uh, and and money and cash is not tight, as in, for example, today's funding environment with the rates being high, et cetera, right? Then, uh, then a lot of very even tricky and, you know, risky and complicated ideas can get funded, mm-hmm. right? So that's the easy answer. A lot of it is just, uh, you know, and, and if the funding cycle is down, then really only very robust ideas that where the tires have been kicked very thoroughly move forward. Right, just because cash is tighter, and so people want to take more uh, bets that have a greater chance of success. Right, um, 
Now, there's a more slightly more complicated aspect to it, which in biotech is what I call a framework of, uh, there's a mentor of mine once, once explained to me, he said, Artaj, you know, biotech is essentially, um, you know, you can divide into three categories. There's the science experiment, there's a clinical experiment, and then there's the commercial experiment, meaning that if it's a science experiment, it's a company that's got a science project that they're doing. And, you know, and he's telling me, he's like, most likely that probably still needs to be in a university or in a private setting, taking mm-hmm. a long period of time. So always, as a public investor, always be wary of those, what's called a science experiment, right? It takes, it's still three, four, five years from showing some real chances of success to, you know, getting commercial. A clinical experiment is one that's been testing in the science domain in petri dishes and animals, and now actually is approaching or is being tested in humans. That's investable. That's usually done by specialist investors in the biotech realm. And then the last one is a commercial experiment where drugs being launched and either the expectations are too high, which the hedge funds love, they will probably try to short that launch, um, which in biotech is well known, or the expectations are very low. For example, with Vertex, they have a pain project, and that could really re-rate the stock significantly over the next one or two years, which is what generalist investors tend to like. They like those commercial experiments that are not well understood and could beat um, you know, expectations. For example, the obesity drugs that are coming to the market, but people don't remember three, four years ago, everybody was skeptical of those drugs. Now mm-hmm. people, everybody seems to believe in them, right? So I would say it's those two elements that go into, um, you know, into, into these, uh, into ideas that are a little bit more, um, um, you know, off center, if you want to get them invested. Yeah, I think there's so much sense in what you just described. I really think that innovation truly accelerates when people have the ability to make risky investments to power things forward. Hopefully, we're returning to that type of market this year. So far, signs seem to indicate that people are a little more willing to invest and hopefully that turns into some of those riskier, earlier science stories being translated into clinical ones. And I'm super excited for that to happen. Can I... Can I just add to that, which is that, look, I'm, I'm a biotech optimist. I'm a huge enthusiast what I do, um, you know, uh, even through the internet version 1.0 in the 1990s, early 2000, and the more recent one, you know, I chose to stay in biotech. And there's actually a very good reason. There's a selfish reason also. I tell people uh, a lot of times I just am not an optimist, but there's some selfishness there also. And in biotech, I give a very simple example. Right, the NBI index, uh, which is the index that most people tend to use in biotech, is about 220 companies right now. It peaked at 370 companies uh, as components on February of 2021, um, and and so and those have come down now as projects have not worked or run out of money, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So now here's the thing: it's about 1.3 or 1.4 trillion in market cap, roughly, or 1.2. I forget what I looked. That's not even one Microsoft or one Google or one Apple. I mean, that's right. Um, now, I ask people a simple thought experiment, right? Where do you think alpha, as the hedge fund folks love to call it, you know, absolute returns are going to get generated in the next 10 to 20 years? 220 companies that are 1 trillion market cap going to 5 or 10 trillion in the next 10 to 20 years, or one company like an Apple or a Microsoft, Google, that's 1 or 2 trillion in market cap going to 10 trillion. Where do you think, what do you has the more probability of success? Uh, most likely the 220 companies, right? That are at that one trillion, one plus trillion in market cap. So I agree with you. The funding environment is tough, but I just remind people always that as a portion of the economy, uh, we are very small. 
um, you know, as a portion of, um, you know, the, the, the various indices on Wall Street, we are very tiny. And so really the only path is up for us, uh, in very large fashion over the next 10, 20, 30 years. I, I think that's most likely what's going to happen. I love that perspective. And for me, I, I totally am in sync with you on that and why I'm so passionate about being in biotech and really helping companies innovate and really bring this beautiful science to something that brings about transformative change. Because I agree with you that the path is only up and the future is bright. So I'm really glad that we got to bond over that. And I guess I'd like to ask you one more question, and that is, and feel free to answer in any way that you like, but if there was one piece of advice that you could give to a management team of an early stage biotech company, what would that be? What would be the one thing you would leave them with? You know, honestly, the ones, uh, the management teams that I've seen um, have success, whether, you know, just straightforward without hitting any bumps or those that actually did had had bumps and were able to recover. It was a very simple thing. I think that they were a team that always tested their own assumptions all the time, whether it was through conscious meetings, you know, weekly, monthly, whenever, or, you know, or informally testing uh, the assumptions. But, you know, management teams, I think, are relentless about testing their own assumptions uh, about their clinical or regulatory passive, uh, you know, uh, package and their path forward about the types of patients they might, um, you know, enroll in their studies, uh, who would be interested, you know, the physicians that would be participating in their studies, making your strategic plans and your, you know, tactical strategies, but then constantly testing your assumptions. Um, and that is not easy. I, I, I've seen those are the management teams that seem to do the best in the long, you know, even in the, you know, I would say mid to long term. Super helpful insight, Hatash. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. No, thank you, Donnie. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, really delightful. Thanks, Hartaj. Wow, Hartaj is such a wonderful person and so immensely knowledgeable. Um, I think what I found most useful is how he describes himself as a nexus of information because we know what comes out as this analysis to investors, but today we got to hear what types of materials go into that into that funnel, the funnel of his connection, aside from SEC filings and the materials that he uses to connect these two very different worlds, which is management teams and public investors. I was really in awe of his ability to track so much information and then synthesize it into something that becomes so valuable to anyone that tracks publicly traded stocks. I think my brain might explode if I tried to do that. Meanwhile, I have to say that I love that he lived in Australia it's not very often that I get to hear that when I meet people in the US. And I hope he got to see the Australians kick some serious butt in cricket whilst he was there. <laughs> so is that the official opinion of the podcast that, that we we like cricket? Are we sure that about that? That is 100% the official <laughs> opinion of this podcast. <laughs> well, anyway, speaking of sports, something I... I really have no business talking about anyway, sports, but I did appreciate his athletic related advice to founding teams. So that was um, always be looking ahead at what the higher level companies or the higher level athletes are doing and steer yourself toward that level, toward their activities. And we absolutely know that this is true when it comes to communicating your corporate message. It's just something that evolves over time as your company grows 
And that's what we love helping teams with. So true, Well, I really hope our listeners enjoyed listening to Hartaj's thoughts on messaging and aspiring to become a public biotech company. As we've talked about before, we love discussing these concepts at Mighty Spark and would love to connect with anyone who wants to continue the conversation with us. Join us next time as we continue to power scientific innovation with storytelling to drive transformative change and solve our most demanding challenges.